0: Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash hardcore history for your free audiobook download. The program you're about to hear is part four of a multi-part series on the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. If you missed the earlier episodes and you like your story in chronological order, you might want to go check out those earlier pieces before you listen to this. If you don't care about those kind of things or you already have done so, well then without further ado, Death rows of the Republic. Part 4. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, it's hardcore history. I always try to remind myself that there's something a little voyeuristic about history especially the kind of history that I enjoy and that many of you enjoy, that wide sweeping grand events sort of stuff that is so fascinating to read about. You know, the sort of incidents that kind of remind you that history is a little bit like a great cosmic scientific experiment with human beings sort of cast into the role of lab rats. And you get this example where you can look at how people behaved in this given stressful situation or that given stressful or tragic or hopeless or whatever situation and be fascinated you know by the reading material and yet i always try to remind myself that the people who were living through these great cosmic scientific experiments the lab rats if you will would probably not be so enamored with the idea that their trials and tribulations were making such um you know fascinating entertainment for us many of these stories that we relate are the most tragic things these people have ever lived through, whatever they may be. I mean, I think about the people who were dying in the story that we did once on the Black Plague. I mean, you wonder how they would react to find out that their tale makes fascinating modern reading. And the only thing I can think of that alleviates this, you know, little form of voyeuristic guilt that I have is that those people themselves were just as taken With the trials and tribulations and stories of their ancestors as we are of them so perhaps it's a human quality once the pain and suffering has worn off enough for it to become what we call history it makes fascinating reading and the results of that experiment where human beings are cast in the role of laboratory rats well it might be evil to do the experiment but that doesn't make the data and results you get from them any less interesting and a perfect example is what's going on in this Roman story, where we are in it. The Dan Carlin version, as I like to call it, of the Roman Republic's decline and fall. We're in about 87, 86 BCE, where Rome's in this weird situation. And the weird situation is, one faction has taken over the city. Now, it's not that strange, because one faction had just taken over the city, um, you know, a year before. And then one faction had just taken over the city a year before that. But what had been going on, essentially, was a... The long-standing problem in Rome had finally gone ballistic and the city was convulsing through a couple of different quick changes. The long-standing problems are these political problems going back all the ways to the times of the 133 BCE era with guys like Tiberius Gracchus. And they set in motion all these forces in the Roman system that change it. And if you believe the ancient historians, uh, degenerate, it, and the combination of the hyperambition of the Roman figures in the story with the decline of the political system and its inability to handle the growth of the Roman state created the conditions where Sulla essentially broke an ancient taboo and marched on the city with legionaries in 87 B.C.E. Now this had been a long-standing no-no, but once he broke it, well, there was no reason for someone to not do it again. And that's what happened as soon as Sulla went to the east to fight the war against Mithridates the Great of Pontus. A war that was considered to be so wealthy and so valuable and so loaded with the potential for prestige that he considered it worth breaking the ancient taboo of marching on Rome with Roman soldiers in order to secure that command. And he thinks he's got Rome settled and the political violence calmed down and the fire you know, amongst the people tamed. So he leaves, takes the army with him and goes east and of course the fire you know, springs right up again and this time the fire has as its aid you know one of the greatest figures in our story the great Caius Marius and Marius dies you know quickly after retaking the city with Cinna and killing a bunch of conservatives and uh, having we're told plans for doing a lot more damage to Sulla when we're told he dies in a fit of nightmares over you know the lion coming back to the lion's lair as Plutarch puts it and what's interesting to me is, you know, you have to try to put yourself, if you're going to be a real voyeur of history, you've got to put yourself in the situation of a guy like Gaius Marius and wonder, you know, who could make him feel that way? In my mind, see, I grew up in an era where the action heroes on, you know, the really bad dudes were guys like Charles Bronson. And the way that the filmmakers made him good guys was they always made some bad guy do something terrible and, you know, unjust to some friend or something of Charles Bronson. And then Charles Bronson would be acting like the evil axe murderer, except he was doing it for justice. He was going around and he's just this baddest dude. What did Mike Tyson call himself? The baddest dude on the planet? baddest man on the planet that's what Charles Bronson was when I was growing up and you think to yourself that's what Gaius Marius is too he is the baddest man on the planet who is he having such terrible nightmares about that he can't sleep and that it may have killed him due to a stress induced stroke some historians think who's Charles Bronson afraid of maybe Charles Bronson's afraid of another guy like him maybe Charles Bronson's afraid of Clint Eastwood and that's what Lucius Cornelius Sulla is like and not just that, maybe Charles Bronson's not afraid of Clint Eastwood in his prime, but Caius Marius is not in his prime anymore. Sulla is, but Marius is an old man at this time. Not just an old man, but an old man whose opponent has the army, the really good army, the one that's gaining experience and you know beating the hell out of Mithridates of Pontus every day. And Marius must have known that maybe he could have taken on Clint Eastwood You know in his best day but he wasn't in his best day anymore and clint eastwood was coming back and the stress may have killed him i've read historians who think it did but he wasn't the only one under stress and this is you know again one of those moments where history turns human beings into laboratory rats because you can read in the sources that the stress caused by the knowledge that the lion would be returning to his lair was affecting multiple layers of roman society Appian talks about how people start seeing, you know, religious things happening and portents, he calls them, you know, divine signs that something terrible is going to happen. And these people are living with this stress for several years. One of the interesting parts about Stanley Bing's book, Rome, Inc., was when he said, and tried to impress upon the reader, this time lag between finding out something bad is on the horizon and how long it actually takes that bad thing to get to you. And I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but he said something like, you know, if one nation declares war on another nation today, you half expect the cruise missiles to arrive in five minutes, or the bombing to start the next day. And he said, in the ancient world, you could find out some terrible man-eating, you know, tribe of killers that was, you know, strong and numerous, was on its way to you, but wasn't going to arrive for six months. And what that does... On the upside, is it gives you a lot of time to prepare, but on the downside, it gives you a lot of time to stress out about, you know, the potential for the very worst thing happening and the knowledge that Sulla was going to be returning to Rome and that at that point something terrible was going to happen was eating the society up in the same way our society would eat itself up if we found out, you know, that something like a meteor or asteroid was on a collision course for Earth but it wasn't going to be here for a couple of years. I mean, think about how, you know, the stress level of that built up over time would start to bubble and boil over. I mean, we'd be seeing divine prophecies too, probably. Here's what Appian says about this weird period while everyone's waiting for the hammer to come down. Quote, Many unexplained attacks of panic were experienced all over Italy, both individually and collectively, and people remembered ancient, more terrifying prophecies, and there were many portents. A mule foaled, a pregnant woman gave birth to a viper instead of a baby, and the god caused a great earthquake and knocked down some temples in Rome. And remember, the Romans attached great weight to such things. The temple on the Capitol, which had been built some 400 years previously by the kings, was burnt down for no reason that could be discovered all these occurrences seem to portend the great number of the dead and the conquest of italy and of the romans themselves and the capture of the city and the alteration of its constitution." End quote. The normally understated Appian makes it clear that individually and collectively people were freaking out as the pressure built and built and built for this, you know, showdown that was going to happen whenever Sulla finished this war you know, against Mithridates in the east. And Sulla was trying to wrap it up quickly because he realized that every day he waited, more bad things were happening to his allies in Rome. You know, after Marius dies, the guy who he helped retake Rome with, Cinna, is left in charge all by himself. And Marius had a long history, remember, of hooking up with people that compensated for his weaknesses. He was an unparalleled general and an admirable guy. A lot of people loved him, but um, not a great politician. So he was always allying himself with these popular demagogues, which is what some of the historians call them. Radical Democrats, great speakers, rabble-rousers, whatever you want to say. And the latest one was Cinna, and Cinna actually outlives him and gets to be in charge of Rome all by himself for a few years while everyone's waiting for this showdown between Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood to happen. Of course, Charles Bronson's dead, and Cinna is a poor replacement for him. He does, however, manage to get himself um, either reelected or reappointed or sometimes just appoints himself to the top job of consul year after year during this little strange period while everyone's waiting for the showdown to happen. One time the vote is supposedly rigged. Another time people are bribed above and beyond the normal amount of bribing. Another time Stin is busy outside of Rome and doesn't want to comply with the law that says he has to return to the city for elections. So he just proclaims himself consul and nobody does anything. Part of the reason why is that the people who would be the natural counterweight to Sina and his political faction are leaving the city all the time. It's part of, you know, the bad things that are being done to all of Sulla's friends and allies that are sending these refugees away from Rome. And we're told that there's a trail of them leaving the city all the time and heading east toward Sulla and the protection of his armies. And these are some of the most wealthy refugees you've ever seen. They completely defy the typical stereotype because normally when you think of refugees you think of people in torn clothing who lack shoes maybe they're hungry and tired these refugees had their wardrobes with them and their furniture their ornate furniture and their art and their treasure chest and their slaves to carry them these are some of the people who are the richest most powerful aristocratic august figures in rome members of the senate who are of the Optimate faction, people whose names are so famous they grace the pages of Roman history for centuries before this time, and they're leaving. Because it's not exactly a good time to be an aristocrat in Rome when the radical demagogues or populists or you know radicals, whatever you want to call them, are in charge. And there are other times in history where you can see similarly wealthy refugees fleeing. Uh, Areas where the people have taken control, or at least the representatives of the people have taken control. Look at revolutionary France during the late 1700s when, you know, people were being guillotined. There were a lot of French nobles who fled the country for exile in more conservative European monarchies while they awaited the restoration of French royalty because had they stayed in France, they, you know, were good targets for the mob. Same thing with... The Russian nobility when the Tsarist regime fell near the end of the First World War, you saw more people with Russian aristocratic names in foreign capitals than you'd ever seen before because to go back to what was you know, becoming Bolshevik, Russia and the Soviet Union was to face a firing squad in a lot of cases or prison or re-education camps. So you're seeing the same kind of thing in Rome as these Roman nobles and great families head east towards Sulla. And at one point, Sulla will write back to the Roman Senate and say that he has so many august Roman figures with him and members of the Senate that he's got a virtual Senate in the East with him. And if Sulla is the lion who's going to return to the lion's den at some point, the people that are arriving to the East with the you know, horrific tales of what Cinna and you know, the mob are doing to the wealthy people's estates and territories and everything, if Sulla is the lion, his compatriots who are leaving Rome are providing him with a list of people that should be on the menu. When he goes back to Rome, there are certain people you should make sure you eat, and here we have a list of them for you. And if you go back to Rome during this period, while a lot of these people from the conservative Roman faction are fleeing the city, the Senate is still operating during this strange period, 87, 86, 85, 84 BCE. Even though Cinna is the strong man, even though he keeps getting the top job over and over again, and even though he's kind of like a puppet master, the Senate and everything still functions one of the great things about Roman history is that no matter how weird things get, the institutions go on as though everything's normal most of the time. As a matter of fact, the Senate is such a resilient institution that a long time after Rome has ceased to be a republic in any way, shape or form, when it's run by one guy at the top, an emperor for all intents and purposes, the Senate continues to go about its business acting as though. You know, it's still doing something important. I'm still buying and selling favors and all that stuff. Here's what historian Adrian Goldsworthy says about it. It's great. Quote, and Marius had killed some senators and caused others to flee abroad, but the majority of the Senate remained in Rome and continued to meet. Many senators were not strong supporters of Cinna and his associates, but equally had no particular love for Sulla. The Senate's debates appear to have been comparatively free, and at times it voted for measures that were not particularly pleasing to Sinna, for instance, when it began negotiations with Sulla. Yet it could not restrain him or prevent consecutive consulships, for in the end, he, meaning Sinna, controlled an army, and the Senate did not. In Sina's Rome, the Senate convened, the courts functioned, and elections were held, creating at least a veneer of normality. There was a remarkable elasticity in the main institutions of the Republic, which tended to continue running in some form under almost any circumstances, interrupted only temporarily by riot and bloodshed. Senators' lives revolved around the doings of favors to win support, gaining influence, and seeking office. Whatever the circumstances, they naturally continued to try to do these things as far as was possible. End quote. So even while everyone awaited the hammer to come down and the feeling of, you know, bottled up stress was getting worse and worse all the time, the senators were still out there taking bribes and doing favors and acting important and vying for whatever office they could get in what had essentially become a temporary dictatorship. And you could see that it wasn't a kind of a total dictatorship under Sinna because, as Goldsworthy pointed out, the Senate had some freedom of action to do things that Sinna didn't like. For example, Goldsworthy says, negotiate with Sulla. They knew, as everyone else did, this terrible sort of Damocles that hung over their heads, and they were trying to do what we would probably do in a similar situation. They were trying to see if they could ward off what appeared to be inevitable. if the lion had to return to the lair, was there some way to shrink the size of the dinner menu? Or maybe eliminate the idea of a meal entirely. And some of the letters that go back and forth are recorded by Appian. Uh, For example, he has one absolutely chilling letter from Sulla back to the Senate, where he explains in a tone that sounds a little like someone who's saying, after all the things I've done for you, look how you've treated me. And he writes back to the Senate, who's trying to create a sort of a unity party to mediate between the different sides so that we don't have to have a terrible Holocaust when Sulla returns. And here's what Sulla writes back to the Senate, according to Appian, quote, Sulla wrote arrogantly to the Senate with a catalog of his achievements against Jugurtha in Numidia when he was an officer in the Kimbric War when he was a deputy commander in Callikia when he was governor in the Social War and as consul but boasted above all about the recent Mithridatic campaign, listing all the many peoples which Mithridates had annexed, but which he himself had won back for Rome, and he placed no less emphasis on the fact that he had welcomed men who had fled to him in desperation after being driven out of Rome by Cinna, and that he was helping them in their misfortunes. In return for these services, he said, his opponents had declared him an enemy of the state, raised his house to the ground, and killed his friends, while his wife and children had only just managed to make their escape to him. But he would soon be there to act in the interest of these refugees and the whole of Rome, and to exact vengeance from the perpetrators of these deeds. As for the other citizens, including the newly enfranchised, he would not hold any of them to blame for anything." This terrified the Senators. This sounds like a Clint Eastwood you know, promise, when I come back there, the guilty will pay. And the problem the senators had was they didn't know, you know, which ones of them were going to be called guilty or not. There was a little bit of a gray area on who this lion was going to eat, and these senators were working hard to try to see if they couldn't make sure that they weren't on the menu. The thing is, is that the guy who had real power in Rome at this time, though, Cinna, was definitely on the menu. He had no reason or incentive to compromise with Sulla because any deal that was made wasn't going to spare him. So even though he promised the Senate he would be a good boy and he would not raise troops, they didn't want him doing anything that would jeopardize this deal they were trying to broker with Sulla, didn't want the good faith to be endangered. They tell Sina, don't do anything to make Sulla mad. And Sina says, no problem, I won't go raise troops. And he immediately goes out and raises troops. He and the other people that were almost certainly on the dinner menu, no matter what, went to the Italian allies all around Rome. These people that had been recently enfranchised. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history of this period, it's remarkable how fast everything happened. In 91 BCE, Marcus Livius Drusus is assassinated. You know, this politician who it seemed likely was going to give the Italian allies full voting rights. And then he's killed, you know, like a Kennedy brother. And he dies, which instantly causes the Italian allies to rise up in rebellion. And you have this social war for a couple of years. And then Rome defeats them and then promptly falls into a civil war itself. You know, practically just a year later. And the Italian allies are now encouraged to join one side of that civil war. The side of people like Cinna and the Populare faction. And Cinna goes to these Italians, you know, while he's trying to raise these legions to prevent the lion from returning to its lair at all. That's his plan. We're not going to negotiate because I'm on the menu. We're going to fight. And he goes to the Italian allies and essentially tells them, you're on the menu, too, no matter what he says. And he guilt trips them. He says, listen, I and my party and these other august Romans who have died in the political violence since 133 B.C. would never have been in this mess if it wasn't for you. We were championing your cause, the rights of you to be citizens, and now look at the trouble we're in. You kind of owe us your aid, don't you? And then he threw this in, a little bit of human nature at play. This is what Cinna was good at, pushing all the buttons in a speech. And he said, besides, how's it going to be when Sulla comes back and takes over? He who represents a group of people who never liked the words Italian allies and citizenship used in the same sentence anyway. And using his silver tongue, which had worked wonders raising legionaries in the past, Sina raises more armies to face Sulla. Now, it's one thing for a silver-tongued orator like Sina to be able to raise troops. It's another thing to get them ready, willing, and able, and motivated to fight Sulla's troops. This is where Sina proved deficient, and he should have known better, because Sulla had already proven to have a certain magic when it came, first of all, to dealing with rival Roman generals, but especially in dealing with Roman legionaries, even if they weren't Sulla's legionaries. For example, right after Gaius Marius dies, Sulla handpicks his successor, a guy who's going to be the consul, a guy named Valerius Flaccus, and he sends Flaccus to the east, apparently on a mission to take over Sulla's command. This seems completely insane, but the sources say that, you know, Flaccus went over there and said something to the effect of, hi, I'm the new consul, and uh, the Senate has decreed that I I'm going to take over this war against Mithridates from you, and your services are no longer required, and if you would just hand over your legions to me, um, you know, you can be on your way. And, of course, this seems insane because there's a death sentence on Sulla's head back in Rome, and the only thing keeping his head on his shoulders are his 40,000 personal, you know, legionary bodyguards that he has with him in the east. But Sulla, showing this certain kind of magic he had with other Roman commanders convinces Flaccus, a guy who knows the whole story, right, who was sent here by Sulla's bitter enemy to, you know, sneak his army away from him. And Sulla says to him, listen, um, I'm so close in this war against Mithridates. It's almost done. It would take a while to bring you up to speed. You know, that's the way the argument seems to go. Just let me finish the war and then we can deal with this. And he must have been convincing because the sources say Flaccus said, okay, this proved to be his death sentence though because there was a guy in the officer corps probably the sub commander directly for Flaccus a guy named Fimbria who might have been sent there to be the enforcer to make sure things worked out the way Sina wanted and he kills Valerius Flaccus in almost a mafia style hit and he takes over the armies and he's much more committed to you know, pressing the situation against Sulla Sulla can't work his magic on Fimbria But he can work his magic apparently on Fimbria's legionaries because we're told that as Fimbria, you know, erects a camp getting ready to face off against Sulla's veterans, Sulla decides to build a camp right next to Fimbria's. And he has his legionaries out there digging trenches, you know, within eyesight of the ramparts of Fimbria's camp. And apparently Fimbria's soldiers don't like the look of Sulla's veterans. And they come out of their camp. And Plutarch says, salute Sulla's veterans, you know, they're all Roman soldiers after all, salute Sulla's veterans, and then spontaneously walk over and pick up shovels and begin helping them dig the trench for their own camp. They have changed sides, and Fimbria kills himself. In the Roman camp, when he realizes he's lost the whole army. And the ancient sources point out that in one, you know, clever stroke, the fox half of Sulla, remember he's half fox and half lion, a guy like Carbo would have said, another Roman consul, and he's able to double the size of his army with one clever maneuver. And he'll do this over and over again. You know, stealing Roman legionaries, basically, right out from under their commander. So you'd think Cinna would bear this in mind. It must have been a heck of a shock when it happened a couple of years previously. And now Cinna, who's raised this army to go deal with Sulla, a bunch of green troops, people who've never fought together, fighting under a general who's not that well-known. And he begins to transport them to Greece, you know, over the water, because he doesn't want them fighting in Italy. Bringing Sulla back to Italy is going to have all kinds of connotations. Better to deal with him on neutral ground. And Appian says that the troops crossing over the water did not go well, and Cinna handled it in a tone-deaf fashion, considering how easily Sulla was able to get troops to change sides in the past, and how little these legionaries wanted to face Sulla. Remember, this is a period where legionaries fought for booty and pay and spoils and what their general could do for them after the war. What were they going to get if they beat Sulla's veterans? Nothing. What were they going to get if they lost? They were going to die. So they needed some careful handling on the part of their leader, and Cinna handled it in exactly the wrong way. Here's what Appian says about the treacherous crossing of the seas trying to land troops, you know, on the opposite side of the water. Quote, "...the first detachment crossed safely, but the second encountered a storm, and any man who reached land immediately deserted and hurried home because they had no intention of fighting against fellow Romans." When the rest heard this, they said that they too were no longer willing to cross to Dalmatia. Cinna, who was furious, summoned them to an assembly with the intention of cowing them, and they gathered angrily, quite ready to defend themselves. When one of the lictors—the lictors are the officers who accompany the consuls— when one of the lictors who was clearing a path for Cinna struck a man who was in his way, another soldier hit the lictor. Cinna ordered his arrest, but everyone began to shout. Stones were thrown at him, and those who were close to him went so far as to draw their daggers and stab him. End quote. If Cinna had been Caius Marius, he might have been able to embarrass and shame these troops into better behavior. That was completely the wrong tactic for Cinna to have taken at this time. Maybe if he'd tried a pep talk, you know, rouse them with patriotism and enthusiasm and talk about the Italian allies, you know, it might have worked. He picked The wrong tactic to use against a bunch of mutinous legionaries, and the mutinous legionaries made him pay with his life. When this happens, his right-hand man, a consul he handpicked, a guy named Carbo panics. Appian says, quote, Although Carbo recalled from Dalmatia the men who had crossed, he was nervous about the current situation and did not return to Rome, in spite of an urgent appeal from the tribunes to conduct an election of a colleague for himself. When they threatened to deprive him of office, he came back and fixed a date for the consular election. The omens turned out unfavorably, and he announced another day. But that also was unlucky, because lightning struck the precincts of Luna and Cirrus, and the augurs put off the election until after the summer solstice. Thus Carbo remained sole consul." That's a good indication of how the Roman system was being tweaked and loopholes were being found, so that you didn't have to return to any sort of normalcy in this period that's akin, you know, to us living in a time when we find out an asteroid's on the way. I mean, I doubt we'd have our government functioning fully normally, and um, it was the same way in Rome. And every time Carbo's got to deal with an election so that he has to share power with some other guy, he finds a reason not to have the election. Oh, uh, bad omens today. Uh, That liver doesn't look good. And then the next time, oh, had some lightning strikes. Obviously, the god doesn't want the election now. And so by hook or by crook, he manages to unconstitutionally stay in power, waiting for the showdown with Sulla. In 83 BCE, with no legionaries there to oppose him, Sulla lands in Italy. And many historians date the actual beginning of the Civil War to this time period, when Sulla and his veterans arrive back home and begin their march on Rome. And the first thing you notice reading the histories is why Cinna did not want this showdown to happen on Italian soil, why he tried to do it in Greece, because Sulla still has supporters and allies in Italy, and as soon as they hear that he's landed, they begin flocking to him. And many of these allies are very young indeed, and many of them bring troops with them. For example, one of these people is named Crassus. and Crassus, along with some of these other newfound allies, will become important people in the next generation of this story. He's a guy who has a long-standing dispute against the Marian faction. His father and his brother were both killed in the purges by Gaius Marius and he brings with him a hired army to help Sulla out. He's famously quoted as having said, you can't even call yourself rich if you can't afford to maintain an army, and Crassus could, and he quickly puts it at the disposal of Sulla. So does another young man, also in his early 20s, a flamboyant character named Canaeus Pompeius. Pompey. What's the best way to describe Pompey? He's one of those figures that, you know, there's enough history on some of these ancient figures so that you can start to get three-dimensional images of them. But they also become kind of controversial because you have different viewpoints and how different people saw them. One thing's for sure. He had a nickname that I always think of when I think of Pompey. And the Latin words are adolescentilus carnifix, adolescent butcher. And here he is, you know, coming to Sulla for his own personal reasons, and this is kind of a difference between he and Crassus. Crassus is going to the natural person for him to go to. His father and brother were killed by Marius, his property confiscated, he's one of the rich people that are members of the other faction, and you know he's naturally gravitating towards Sulla, a natural ally. Pompey's not a natural ally. Pompey's an opportunist. He's in his early 20s, and he sees an opportunity to advance farther than most Romans his age have ever seen before them. After all, Rome's got a system. It's a system based on conventions, but it's a pretty solid system. And the system is that you go through these predictable rungs on the ladder. You know, as you're rising in fame and importance and experience and, you know, your resume gets longer. And by the time you're of an age that the Romans considered to be sort of seasoned and ready for leadership, you're in your mid-30s, mid-40s, early 50s, and Rome considered that to be the age where you calmed down and got serious and could be trusted with things like power but the roman world is in a period of suspended animation right now and all of the normal conventions that apply in the regular roman world are also suspended and they may never return for all the people living through this time period know and so a guy like pompey doesn't have to wait 10 or 20 years to achieve you know fame and fortune in the roman system Under the new rules of the suspended animation period, you can do whatever you can get away with. And he was supposedly sniffing around Cinna's camp for a while, seeing if there was a good place for him there. And if he liked the chances of Cinna winning the Civil War, eventually he raises his own private army and brings it to Sulla's aid and presents it to him. And Sulla figures out Pompey's character right away, we're told. I mean, this is another element of Sulla. You get all through you know the histories if you're reading between the lines boy does this guy have a knack for figuring out people's weak points and usually exploiting them i mean he's violent when he has to be and he's extremely violent when he has to be but he's one of those people that will do all by hook or by crook whatever it takes and with pompey he sees a young kid basically who's dying for the roman honors and the dignitas it's called and you know triumphs and all these things and Sulla just plays on that. He sees these personality quirks and he gives extra attention to Pompey and he flatters him and he makes him feel important and Pompey just becomes one of his best lieutenants because he's played him like an instrument. And it's interesting watching Sulla associating with guys like Pompey and Crassus because what you see is something that's absolutely common in the Roman system and you see it in a lot of other systems and a lot of other eras too. But it's this passing of the torch from one generation to another. I mean, Sulla's not really passing the torch now, but in every era of Roman history, for example, you can find, you always see the people that are going to play a role in the next generation of Roman history have sort of, you know, rubbing elbows and shaking hands and, you know, having public meetings with the people who are playing those roles, you know, in the current era, when the up-and-comers are still young. And in this case, it's Pompey and Crassus, two of the most important people in the rest of this story getting to know the most important person in this part of the story. And together, Sulla and his new allies, Crassus and Pompey, and a bunch of other people and a big old army, start making their way toward Rome. And remember, this is like Clint Eastwood now, finally returning after years of this terrible thing hanging over the heads of the Romans. They're finally going to experience, you know, all this stuff they've had time to panic about. And according to Appian, the people of Italy, along with the current Marian leadership, which is what the leadership on this side, Sinna's Carbo side, Caius Marius's side, are called. Appian talks about both how scared they were and yet how they rallied behind the current government because they couldn't think of what else to do. Quote, "...so Sulla advanced against his enemies with violent but hidden hatred." while the party in Rome were terrified because they had a fair idea of Sulla's character and had fresh in their imaginations his previous assault and capture of the city. They also reflected on the decrees that they'd passed against him, and they saw his house razed to the ground, his property forfeit, his friends put to death, and his family only just saved by escape. Judging that no middle course existed between victory and complete destruction, they rallied in their fear to the side of the consuls against Sulla, requesting contributions of men, food, and money from outside of Rome, and sparing neither effort nor commitment in their belief that they faced disaster. Gaius Norbinus and Lucius Scipio, the current consuls, and with them Carbo, the consul of the previous year, who all shared an equal hatred of Sulla, but were much more afraid than the others, and were more deeply involved in what had been done, conscripted as effective an army as they could from Rome. To it they added troops from Italy, and took the field against Sulla, dividing their forces, which at first numbered 200 cohorts of 500 men each, but afterwards more. Public sympathy was overwhelmingly on the side of the consuls, since Sulla's action of marching against his own country appeared to be an act of war, while that of the consuls, even if it was undertaken in their own interest, had the cloak of patriotism. The majority of people who were aware of the criminal nature of the deeds that had been done, and thought that they also had reason to be afraid, cooperated with the consuls, since they knew well that Sulla intended not to punish, or correct, or overawe them, but to violate, kill... Dispossess, and in short, completely destroy them. Nor were they mistaken. End quote. This war that starts now is known as the Civil War, and it will go on in one form or another for more than three years. There's a lot of fighting and um, many big battles, and there are some things that happen in these battles that are so Remarkable, or strange or dramatic. It's worth pointing a few of them out. First of all, you get to watch Sulla do the same thing in Rome that he did in the East when Roman armies showed up. He's got this amazing ability to turn commanders to his side to get troops to rally and just literally walk across the battlefield to throw down their standards in the middle of a battle. There's one battle where his troops seem to be winning, so the Marian forces cohort after cohort of them on one whole flank, throw down their standards together and just run over to the other side. Talk about having no faith in your own troops sometimes if you're the Marians. Sulla appears to be a bit of a you know, magician or a wizard or a dark necromancer when it comes to his ability to infect the souls of other Roman soldiers. I mean, at one point, Sulla is surrounded by Marian armies, one of which is led by Scipio, the consul. And Sulla invites Scipio to a little conference to have a negotiation and somehow gets Scipio to go, okay, and here's what Plutarch says about it, Sulla, seeing himself still surrounded by so many armies and such mighty hostile powers, had recourse to art, inviting Scipio, the other consul, to a treaty of peace. The motion was willingly embraced, and several meetings and consultations ensued, in all which Sulla, still interposing matters of delay and new pretenses, in the meanwhile debauched Scipio's men by means of his own, who were as well practiced as the general himself in all the artifices of inveigling. For entering into the enemy's quarters and joining in conversation, they gained some by present money. Some by promises, others by fair words and persuasions, so that in the end, when Sulla, with 20 cohorts, drew near on his men saluting Scipio's soldiers, they returned the greeting and came over, leaving Scipio behind them in his tent, where he was found, all alone and dismissed. End quote. That's just one of the stories that's too good to pass up, you know, from what happened in the Civil War. There's so many of them. I mean, think about what just happened here. Sulla's got a bunch of Marian armies around him. He chooses the biggest one, commanded by one of the consuls. You'd think this would be an intelligent, you know, individual who knew what he was doing. And Sulla invites Scipio, the consul, to peace talks. And he delays him and stalls him the whole time he's got him there. And then while this is going on, his troops are and I love Plutarch's translation, debauching, corrupting Scipio's troops and offering them all kinds of things and telling them, you know, come on over to our side and just basically undermining his legions so that when the two sides come to face off against each other, Sulla's troops salute Scipio's troops and they salute back and then come on over. It's almost like it's the pre designed sign. Okay, if we salute you, you know, the whole deal's on. Just walk on over. And they did. And then they find the consul, Scipio, alone in his tent. You could just imagine he's got his hands pulling his hair out, going, What do I do now? I lost an army too. I'm just like, you know, Fimbria over in the east. And Sulla's stolen another army from the Marian side. And then I love how he's handled, he's just dismissed. That's wonderful. Now, one of the other parts of the Civil War that just makes this all the more a personal struggle is that Carbo, who's one of the commanders in Rome, really the dictator still, appoints young Marius to the role of consul. Now, young Marius is what they called in the ancient world Marius's son, the great Gaius Marius's son, probably hoping to steal a little of the Marius magic at a time when it's really needed. You know, maybe Charles Bronson's not here, but we have Charles Bronson Jr., and he's only 26. And when he's given the job of consul, it's a little like what Crassus and Pompey are getting on the other side. What is a 26-year-old doing as consul? That's not even legal. Is it in the Roman system? Well, too bad. We live in a time of suspended animation. You can almost see Rome's leaders saying, and we need Gaius Marius's son here now. And... I've got a couple of histories that talk about the grumbling that must have been going on while these older, hyper-ambitious Romans who, you know, laboriously climbed the rungs of success the way they were supposed to watch some young, handsome playboy who had a famous father get something at an age they're not even allowed to have it in, and they just had to live with it. And when Sulla hears that his arch-enemy's son has been elected consul, he utters a great line. He says... As I grow older, my enemies grow younger. Another thing that happened that just makes the Civil War so interesting is that as Sulla's gaining the upper hand, and it's just starting to look like, okay, the Marian forces are going to lose, all of a sudden a whole new power enters the war. The Samnites and the Lucanians, two of these Italian peoples, as we've said before, who gave the Romans trouble from time immemorial and who fought against them in the Social War, decide that now is the time... For maybe the last time, to strap on the armor and come streaming out of their mountain strongholds down into the plains to, you know, side with the Marians in this war so that Sulla doesn't take command of Rome. And I've read historians who say that they were provoked. The Romans make them sound like opportunists or people who just see a fight with two tired combatants and they're going to jump in now as the one, you know, fresh opponent with 40 or 50,000 soldiers. And originally, they're heading for this city that young Marius is trapped in. He's lost a battle against Sulla, and he was pursued so closely by Sulla's forces that, that they try to run into the city to escape, but the city has to close the gates because, you know, Sulla's going to get in otherwise, and they leave a lot of men on the other side who get massacred against the walls. And in a daring escape, Marius is supposed to, the young Marius, is supposed to climb the rope that's let down by the people on the other side of the walls and escape to safety in the nick of time, but he's trapped in the city. And so the Lucanians and the Samnites are going to rescue him, but there's too many armies between them and the city. At one point a bunch of Lucanians desert and just leave once they see, you know, the armies facing them, and their commander does one of the wild things in this war. The commander goes to Sulla and starts to negotiate, and he's trying to negotiate for himself, you know, yes, I know I let all these people against you. How can I get off? And the sources say that Sulla said, um, Well, do something nasty. You know, he basically said, uh, show me how serious you are. Do something for our side. And so the sources say that he invites a bunch of the big-time generals from the Marian side to dinner, because obviously he's an ally. He just brought, you know, thousands of men to the Marian side. Come on and have dinner in my tent. And when they arrive in the tent and they're eating, he has them all killed. That's how you get on Sulla's good side. There's another story where thousands of Samnites... Contact Sulla when they're trapped he's got them trapped and they know that they're okay listen we're doomed can we negotiate and they go to Sulla and they say you know what can we do to get out of this and Sulla says do some mischief to your countrymen and we'll see what I can do and so they come out of their stronghold and they immediately attack their own you know brethren that's a great story finally Marius who can't find a way out of his situation, young Marius. He knows that the city he's in is doomed. It's going to fall. He issues an order to just go kill all of the people who are their opponents still left alive in Rome. And here's what Appian writes about what young Marius did when he realized he was trapped. Quote, since he saw no hope of escape, Marius hurried to eliminate his personal enemies before he died, by sending instructions to Brutus, the urban praetor, to call a meeting of the Senate, ostensibly for some other purpose, and kill Publius Antistius, another Papirius Carbo, Lucius Domitius, and Mucius Scavola, the Pontificus Maximus. The first two of these were indeed murdered in the Senate, according to Marius' instructions, by assassins who had been brought into the Senate House. Domitius ran out, but was killed by the door, and they caught Scavola just in front of the building. Their bodies were thrown into the Tiber, for it had now become usual not to bury the slain. Sulla sent his army in divisions by a variety of routes to surround Rome, giving them orders to seize the gates, and if they were repulsed, to move on Ostia. As they marched by, they were received with terror by the towns along the way, and when they approached Rome, the city population opened the gates, both because they were suffering from famine and because they had grown accustomed to facing whatever current trouble was the worst. And you have to understand that the people in Rome by this time were just worn out. They had just survived a major scare when the Samnites and Lucanians entered the war, because those forces originally headed toward where young Marius was trapped— When they realized they couldn't get to him, they also noticed that Rome itself was undefended, and they turned around and headed for Rome. And the people in the city freaked out when they realized, "Uh uh-oh, all of our armies are elsewhere, and our most hated enemies from time immemorial have an open shot at the city. Plutarch makes it very dramatic. He tells what was going on and how, you know, the city essentially sent its young people out to try to hold off these Samnite warriors. Here's what Plutarch writes about once the Romans realized that they had Samnites, you know, at their gates and no legions to protect them. Quote, "...Lamponius the Lucanian, having collected a large force, had been hastening towards Pernesti to relieve Marius from the siege." But perceiving Sulla ahead of him, and Pompey behind, both hurrying up against him, straightened thus before and behind as a valiant and experienced soldier. He arose by night, and marching directly with his whole army, was within a little of making his way unexpectedly into Rome itself. He lay that night before the city, at ten furlongs distance from the Colleen Gate, elated and full of hope at having thus outgeneraled so many eminent commanders. At break of day, being charged by the noble youth of the city, among many others, he overthrew Appius Claudius, renowned for high birth and character. The city, as it's easy to imagine, was all in an uproar, the women shrieking and running about as if it had already been entered forcibly by assault, till at last Balbus, sent forward by Sulla, was seen riding up with 700 horse at full speed. End quote. What had happened, and this is kind of how the war ends in Italy, is that Sulla hears that the Samnites are marching and the Lucanians are marching on Rome and no one's there to defend them, and he turns around and sends the army at full speed toward Rome. No waiting, no recovering, and the first ones to arrive, of course, are the cavalry, and, and supposedly they don't, you know, they stop and wipe the sweat off the horses and just keep going because the Samnites and Lucanians have already killed the young noble youth of Rome that valiantly come out to put some sort of a attempt at resistance. And we're told the Lucanian is running around telling the people that he commands. He's going from cohort to cohort in the battle, saying that this is the best chance they've ever had of wiping out the Romans and that you don't think we're ever going to be free of these wolves if we don't wipe out the forest that they keep breeding in. And he's talking about the city of Rome. And eventually Sulla and Crassus and all the armies arrive at like four in the afternoon and they have this terrible battle in front of the gate and 50,000 people die. It's a horrible ancient battle. And Sulla massacres these survivors. I mean, at one point a bunch of uh, he tells his men to take no prisoners, but a bunch of Samnites throw down their weapons anyway, and the Romans just capture them, even though they weren't supposed to keep any alive. Samnites have been massacred since the minute they get into this war. When Sulla captures Samnite enemies, he just kills them. Now the great Caius Marius's son, the 26 or seven-year-old, kid who got to be in command of Rome's forces for a while because of the unique situation, kills himself just as soon as he's about to be you know, turned over to his enemies. He was in a town called Pernesti. And here's what Appian says, quote, When the population of Pernesti saw this, meaning Sulla's big victories, and discovered that Carbo's army had been totally destroyed, and that he and Norbinus had already left Italy, and that Sulla's energy had brought the rest of Italy, including Rome, under his control, they surrendered the town to Lucretius. Marius descended into some underground tunnels, and after a short interval, committed suicide. Lucretius cut off Marius' head and sent it to Sulla, And Sulla, after placing it in front of the rostra in the middle of the forum, is reported to have mocked the consul's youth by saying, First you learn to pull an oar, then you may take the helm. Sulla then goes on to divide the inhabitants of the city of Pernesti into three groups, Romans, Samnites, and the citizens of the city. He tells the Romans they deserve to all die, but he's going to let them go. He lets the wives and children of the other people go, and then he massacres all of them. And there are certain parts of these stories that we just kind of let fly by without examining. But you think of these many thousands of people that Sulla is executing, whether it's the 8,000 after the battle in front of the gates of Rome or the many thousand after the city is taken. It's mind-boggling to imagine the logistics of killing, organized killing, organized executions on that mass of a scale. I mean, you can go to the era of Charlemagne, and he killed, I think it was 10,000 Saxons in a single day. He had their heads cut off. They were lined up in long lines, and he had men in front with swords and cutting blocks, like you would you know, cut off someone's head on a block. And they were just operating like a mechanized thing you know, all day long. The Mongols are supposed to have gotten it down to a science where they would literally line up their whole army and they would bring seven or eight or nine or however many people were required um, of the captured and condemned enemy all tied up and put a row of people in front of each Mongol soldier and then... When the command was given, the Mongol soldier was to decapitate, you know, the seven or eight or nine people that were their charge, and the whole army had seven or eight or nine people each, and in a very short period of time you could have massive amounts of industrialized killing without anything more than muscle power to do it. The logistics of this stuff is hard to understand. We're from an era where, you know, when the Nazis were doing similar things, they were doing it with poison gas. This sort of you know, manual execution of many thousands of people at once is hard to mentally grasp. It's, a, it's an image that you can't, first you can't contemplate it, and if you can, then you can't get it out of your mind. Appian tells what happened in another town. He says, quote, So fell Pernesti, but another town, Norba, still resisted stubbornly until Aemilius Lepidus was admitted into it by treachery. Unbearably goaded by the treachery, some of the inhabitants then committed suicide. Some killed each other by mutual agreement, and some actually hanged themselves. Others barricaded the gates and set light to the houses, and a strong wind which fanned the flames caused such destruction to the town that not a single piece of booty was taken from it. Such was the determination with which the inhabitants of Norba met their end. End quote. So you can see that now the lion has returned to the lair and the asteroid has hit, the kind of, you know, end times some of these cities seem to feel have arrived. When Sulla enters Rome, he asks the Senate and some of the people to meet in a giant open square because he's going to address them. And unbeknownst to them, he has had thousands of Samnite prisoners brought into one of the government buildings nearby. And this government building is ornate and you have to imagine statues and art and marble. It's a beautiful, you know, showpiece for the Roman, you know, superstate. He's got all these Samnite prisoners locked up in there. And he begins to address the crowd, and I love the way Tom Holland tells this story. Quote As Sulla launched into his address, describing his victory over Mithridates, the senators began to hear the muffled sounds of shrieking from the Samnite prisoners. Sulla continued, apparently oblivious to the screams, until at last he paused and ordered the senators not to be distracted from what he had to say. Some criminals are receiving their punishment, he explained dismissively. There's no need for worry. It's all being done on my orders. The massacre was total. Holland writes. In the cramped conditions of the slaughterhouse, the bodies piled up high. Once the executions had been completed, the corpses were dragged across the campus and flung into the Tiber, clogging the banks and bridges with pollution, until at last the river's currents cut a swath of blood through the azure open sea. The stains on the Villa Publica itself, he writes, were not so easily removed. The census had been held there only three years previously. Now the rooms in which the rolls had been completed were filthy with gore. The symbolism was shocking and obvious. Sulla rarely made any gesture without a fine calculation of its effect. By washing the Villa Publica with blood, Holland writes, he had given dramatic notice of the surgery he was planning to perform on the Republic. End quote. Appian says of Sulla's actual speech to the senators and the public, quote, Sulla himself called the Romans to an assembly, and after making a long and boastful speech about himself and issuing terrible threats to frighten them, concluded by saying that he would introduce a change that would be beneficial to the people if they would obey him, but that he would spare none of his enemies the ultimate in torment, and would pursue with all his might the praetors and the questers and the military tribunes and anyone else who had cooperated with the enemy after the date which the consul Scipio failed to abide by his agreement with him. With these words, he immediately prescribed about 40 senators and approximately 1,600 of the equestrian class. He seems to have been the first to publish a list of those he punished with death and to add a statement detailing a prize for killers, rewards for informers, and penalties for concealment. Soon he added other senators' names to the list, Appian says. Some of the prescribed were caught unawares and killed on the spot, in houses or streets or temple precincts. Some were carried bodily to Sulla and hurled down at his feet. Some were dragged along the ground and trampled on. But no one who witnessed these horrors now uttered a word because everyone was terrified. Plutarch remarks that Sulla's actions made it clear to even the most dull-witted Romans what was really going on. Quote, this gave the most stupid of the Romans to understand that they had merely exchanged, not escaped, tyranny. End quote. Author Tom Holland describes how, you know, almost Naziistic Night of the Long Knives, the actual beginning of the what's called prescriptions, were. He talks about the speech where Sulla's killing the Samnites and addressing the senators, and he says, quote, The death squads had fanned out through Rome even as the Samnites were being butchered in the Villa Publica. Sulla himself made no attempt to restrain them. Even his supporters, inured to bloodshed, were appalled by the resulting carnage. One of them dared to ask when the murderers would be reined in, or at least, he added hurriedly, let us have a list of those you want punished. Sulla sardonically, obligingly, duly posted a list in the forum. It featured the entire leadership of the Marian regime. All were condemned to death. Their properties were declared forfeit and their sons and grandsons barred from standing for office. Anyone who helped to protect them was likewise condemned to death. An entire swath of Rome's political elite was summarily nominated for annihilation. End quote. At first, it was just the obvious targets. The lion was going to eat the people that had cooperated with his enemies. Then, every day, new lists would be put up And the public would literally run down to the square to see whose names were on it. And sometimes the people reading the list's names were on it. They'd be killed while they're walking away in shock from reading their name on the list. Because the deal was that you were allowed to kill anybody who Sulla had prescripted, you know, yourself. And if you cut their head off and brought it to Sulla, there was money in it. And he said, how much money? So these people would read their names on the list and there'd be a bunch of other people in the crowd reading the names on the list. And if the guy next to you's name was on the list, you could just turn around and kill him and make a little money. I'm not sure it happened that way, but that's basically what was made legal. And it quickly went from people who had cooperated with the Marian regime to people who had a lot of money. It's one of the ironies of this whole thing that Sulla Soda represents the property classes and the ones with money, but he was in dire straits you know, for money himself. He needed to pay all these troops that had fought this big, long war, and the Senate had cut off Roman funding to them a long time ago. He owed those soldiers a lot of money. And the best way to get the money was to condemn rich people who owned a lot of stuff, put them on the prescription list, pretend that they had been part of the Marian cause, and then kill them, and then the state confiscates their stuff. One guy said that he was killed by his Alban farm. Another by his hot springs, meaning, you know, they had a great house worth a lot of money. And so their name appears on the list and they're killed. Sulla needed money and he wasn't too picky at a certain point in the process for which people his underlings picked to be added to the list. There were even people who were killed first and then retroactively added to the list so that it could still be legal and everything. A generation Later, one of the big critiques against Sulla was that he wasn't more of an overseer of all these people who added names to the list of condemned. And Will Durant has a great line about the people who were making money off of these political killings. He says, The prescriptions became the foundation of many fortunes, and the main fortune was a guy named Crassus. Crassus already had a lot of creative ways for making money. He came from money, and then he would do things like buy his own fireman service. You know, get a bunch of slaves together and make them into a fire brigade because Rome had no official government, you know, run fire brigades. And then when a house or one of these large tenements that the poor especially lived in would catch fire. He would run down there or have a negotiator run down there and offer to either buy the place that was on fire or go next door or places threatened by the fire, because once these fires happened in the ancient world, you were likely to lose a nice block of houses and go to the people who own the houses and say, "Um, you want to sell your house? There's a fire down the street and it's likely to eat up your house and you can get some money from me now or, you know, just lose everything and most people sold. And when they sold, Crassus would have his own private fire brigade come and put out the fire. So he was already used to making money um, off of what we would consider to be rather dubious tactics today. And he was doing the same thing along with a lot of other people, it should be said, with these prescriptions. Somebody would be condemned to death. All their property would essentially go on the auction block to get cash for Sulla. And people like Crassus and future people like Catiline and a bunch of other people would go over there and buy these knocked down, you know, bargain sales at auction. And eventually Crassus would, you know, increase his money exponentially. So would a lot of other people. There was a fortune to be made in the political violence currently going on in Rome. The ancient historian Plutarch has a great description of you know, how it was for this weird period in Rome where people were going down to read uh, the prescription list and find out if their names were on it. He says that Sulla initially put out, you know, the list of people to be killed, but then kept putting up more names over time. And here's how Plutarch describes it, quote. Sulla prescribed 80 persons, and notwithstanding the general indignation, after one day's respite, he posted 220 more, and on the third, again as many. In an address to the people on this occasion, he told them that he put up as many names as he could think of, those of which had escaped his memory, he would publish at a future time. He issued an edict, likewise, making death the punishment of humanity, prescribing any who should dare receive or cherish a prescribed person, without exception to brother, son, or parents. And to him who should slay one prescribed person, he ordained two talents reward, even if it were a slave who had killed his master, or a son his father, And what was thought most unjust of all, he caused the attainder to pass upon their sons and sons' sons, and made open sale of all their property. Nor did the prescription prevail only at Rome, but throughout all the cities of Italy. The effusion of blood was such that neither the sanctuary of the gods, nor hearth of hospitality, nor of ancestral home escaped. Men were butchered in the embraces of their wives, children in the arms of their mothers. Those who perished through public animosity or private enmity were nothing in comparison to the numbers of those who suffered for their riches. Even the murderers began to say that his fine house killed this man, a garden that a third his hot baths. Quintus Aurelius, a quiet, peaceable man, and one who thought all his parts in the common calamity consisted in condoling with the misfortunes of others, coming into the forum to read the list and finding himself among the proscribed, cried out, Woe is me! My Alban farm has informed against me! He had not gone far before he was dispatched by a ruffian sent on that errand. End quote. So you get a feel for this sort of reign of terror going on In Rome, during this period when Sulla is enacting revenge. And we're told that the forum is decorated, Will Durant says, decorated with the heads of famous people, mostly on the other side, but even just famous people who happen to have a lot of money. And I keep trying to imagine what that must have been like because we're told over and over by historians that the way the young people in Rome you know, the ones who come from families and backgrounds that are going to play a role in the next generation of Rome's political future, that those people learn how business is done in Roman politics by watching their elders and that it was customary to bring them to the forum and allow them to watch the great speakers and watch the debates and watch politics play out. If those young people are going to the forum at this time, they're seeing the heads of, Of all these people, for example, that they had watched and enjoyed watching them speak in the forum. I mean, you have to try to imagine something similar today. Imagine, you know, one faction in your country takes over. And you walk down, you know, to the town square or the capital or wherever. And you see their heads. I mean, the heads of ex-presidents and politicians who are famous and that you know and also heads of other people who've supported the other regime. I mean, you probably have um, today, if you thought about it, you'd have some famous activist actors' heads, maybe, and some famous journalists or authors, people who supported the cultural side of the political you know, leadership that was being beheaded left and right. It's kind of easy to see how and why the next generation of Roman politicians behaves as they do if you look at the influences they had while they were learning the tricks of the Roman political trade. And both Plutarch and Appian make it clear that this sullen reign of terror is not confined simply to Rome or even to Italy, but this manhunt for all of his enemies encompasses the whole Roman world. I mean, Many of his enemies will flee to Spain, where the embers of the Civil War will continue to smolder for quite a while longer. Many of the prominent men flee to Africa. Uh, Carbo, the actual consul, uh, is caught on an island with a lot of prominent men and living up to his reputation as the adolescent butcher, Pompey has all of the people around Carbo executed before they're even brought to him. He tells his people when he hears that they've been captured, just kill them. But he has Carbo brought to him and chains him up and sits over him and berates him. And Appian clearly sounds disgusted, you know, with the Roman values of some 23-year-old or 24-year-old, you know, new on the scene kid before he's about to kill a former three-time consul sitting there, you know, rubbing his nose in it. Here's what Appian writes, quote: such being the situation in Italy, Carbo had meanwhile fled with many prominent men from Africa to Sicily and thence to the island of Cassira. There they were arrested by men sent by Pompeius, who gave orders to the escort to kill the others without bringing them into his presence, but made Carbo, a man who had been three times consul, stand below him in chains while he ranted over him. He then put him to death and sent his head to Sulla. End quote. One more head... To decorate a forum that must have been unimaginable to any of our eyes at this time—a most gory daily reminder, you know, of who was in power and what would happen to you if you even sniffed in the wrong direction. Heck, what might happen to you if you just had too much stuff? Just don't get on Sulla's bad side—is sort of the message being sent. And and there's a remarkable exception to this whole thing someone who gets away and it's a famous incident that happens during the prescriptions because Sulla has his eyes on a potential future troublemaker somebody in his late teens very early 20s a person from a noble family that Sulla's not much happy with anyway and so he decides that this guy is gonna die after all lots of other people are dying why shouldn't this person be added to the list? And a bunch of prominent people, even from Sulla's camp, asked that he be spared. And they must have badgered him a lot because eventually he gives in and says, fine, but it's on your heads, essentially. And he utters a famous line. There's like nine different translations. It can be said a bunch of different ways. But in effect, he said, but I'm warning you, in that man goes many a Marius. Or in that man goes a thousand Marius, or a hundred Marius. I've seen it done a bunch of different ways. The point is the same. Sulla's warning you, if you thought Marius was bad, that guy is Marius on steroids. Hey, if you want me to spare him, I'll spare him. And Sulla doesn't do what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill the young Caius Julius Caesar. And he didn't. And that would really change future Roman history. Just ask Pompey. By the time the killing dies down, historians believe almost 5,000 people will have lost their lives. Now, I know that doesn't sound like money, especially when 50,000 people just perished in the battle to get Sulla into Rome. 5,000 doesn't sound like too many. But these are 5,000 hand-picked people. These aren't your average you know, baker who no one knows the name of working, you know, toiling their daily lives in you know, anonymity. These are famous people. These are political figures. These are wealthy people. These are, in many cases, people that if you were walking around the forum looking at the gory warning that was all over the forum, bleeding, no doubt, onto you know, the sides of buildings where they were placed, the heads of people who you would know if you saw them in your community, the prominent people, the people with money, people who had political notoriety, the people who were connected to the political elite... 5,000 important people were butchered as part of these proscriptions. And when they were over, Sulla began to reorganize the Roman state. He had himself declared a dictator, which is an office that had not been used in a long time, and normally only existed for one cause. You could be a dictator to finish a war, for example, and your term of office would last for six months and then it would be over. Sulla had himself proclaimed dictator to fix the Constitution and restructure the laws. I mean, that was basically what his job was, and there was no term limit. He was going to be dictator until the fire had cooled enough so the job was done. And then he goes on to try to reorganize the Roman state and essentially fix everything that had been determined to be wrong with the Constitution from the aristocratic point of view since the days of Tiberius Gracchus way back in 133 BCE. Part of what he tries to do is to eliminate the loophole that had been discovered by Tiberius in the Roman system, the power of the Tribune of the Plebs, to all of a sudden circumvent the august and aristocratic Senate, and go right to the people, been screwing things up in the minds of people like Sulla and his supporters for, you know, 60 years. Time to change that. He neutered the Tribune of the Plebs position. What's more, he started to deal with something that was at the very beginning of this whole series of shows that we talked to you about, the idea of the hyper ambition of the Roman governing class these people who had ancestor walls at home designed to raise these young people in an environment where they literally burned for political honors. And we said that it was a double-edged sword because for a long time Rome really benefited from this essential game of king of the mountain where only the most, you know, tough and the ones with the most merit and guts and ability, you know, would claw their way to the top and govern. And the second they weakened, even for a second, you know, the next most meritorious figure, would then get the job. For a long time, that benefited Rome, and you got a lot of good leaders that way. But the hyperambition also took advantages of all the sort of loopholes and problems in the Roman system. So Sulla does something fascinating. He tries to regulate the ambition of Roman political elites. He starts putting age requirements on certain offices. For example, the way he neuters the Tribune of the plebs is he takes away any sort of ambitious payoff it would give you. Before, that could be the early step on the road to greatness. Now he said, if you're a tribune of the plebs, you're done. There are no offices that can come after that. So you can be a tribune of the plebs, but you just ended your political career when you decided to go into that job. All of a sudden, anyone with future political ambitions avoided that role in the Roman governing system, like the plague. Killed the whole reason some ambitious Roman would want to have that job. He created a... An ironclad system where you had to be this position before you could advance to that position, that position before you could advance to the next position, and you couldn't get to these positions, so you had certain ages, and all these things were determined to sort of regulate and cool the ambitions of the Roman class, and certainly to make sure that none of these youngsters, even though, you know, he owed his success to a couple of them, guys like Crassus and Pompey, but also, on the other side, young Marius, that none of these youngsters could get into positions of power until they had already served quite a bit and been tested and run through the system and had reached a nice, seasoned Roman idea of middle age. Here's the way Will Durant describes Sulla's fixing, as he saw it, of the Roman system. Quote, Using his powers as dictator, Sulla issued a series of edicts known from his clan name as the Cornelian Laws, by which he hoped to establish a permanently aristocratic constitution. To replace dead citizens, he had franchised many Spaniards and Celts, and some former slaves. He weakened the assemblies... Those are the people's assemblies, uh, the democratic institutions. He weakened the assemblies by adding these new members indebted to him and by again ruling that no measure should be put before the assembly except by consent of the Senate. To stop the flocking of poor Italians to Rome, he suspended the state distribution of corn. At the same time, he eased the pressure of the population in the city by distributing land to 120,000 veterans. To prevent the use of successive consulships as, in effect, a dictatorship, he re-emphasized the old requirement of a 10-year interval before the same office could be held a second time by the same man. He lowered the prestige of the tribunate by limiting its right of veto and making ex-tribunes ineligible for higher office. He took from the business class and restored to the Senate the exclusive right to serve as jurors in the higher courts, and he replaced the farming of taxes to publicans with direct payments from the provinces to the Treasury." He reorganized the courts, increased their number for quicker trials, and carefully specified their functions and fields. All the legislative, judicial, executive, social, and sartorial privileges enjoyed by the Senate before the Grokken Revolt were returned to it. For Sulla was certain that only a monarchy or an aristocracy could wisely administer an empire. To renew the full membership of the Senate, he allowed the Tribal Assembly to promote to it 300 members of the equestrian class. To show his confidence in this thoroughgoing restoration, he disbanded his legions and decreed that no army should be permitted in Italy. After two years of dictatorship, he resigned all his powers, re-established consular government, and retired to private life in AD BCE. End quote. That's an amazing achievement for anyone. Now, many people must have disagreed with what Sulla tried to do, but he tried to look at the system logically from the time you know, that everyone since has dated the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to the era of Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother Caius. He said, what happened in the system since then? Let's turn around and fix that. It's a remarkable series of reforms that shows an amazing amount of understanding of what the current problem stemmed from. When you look back at Sulla, he looks like a horribly violent person. The ancient sources make him sound like he really wanted absolute power, but then they make it sound like he tired of it. That he went in there, he fixed all these things, and he also made it impossible, he thought, to ever have another one of him arrive. Disbanded his legions. He didn't have to do that. He could have been a king if he wanted to. Julius Caesar would later say that the one mistake Sulla made was not holding on to power. He voluntarily gives it up, we're told, and then will walk around Rome after he gives up the dictatorship without any sort of bodyguard or anything. This is a man who killed like 100,000 Romans. You would think the whole world wanted him dead, and yet, as one historian says, he killed everybody who even and I had a thought about killing him. He could walk around Rome as a private citizen with no bodyguard, and no one touched him. I love the way Will Durant sort of explains his end. Quote, He was safe, for he had killed nearly all who could plan his assassination. He dismissed his lictors and guards, walked unharmed in the forum, and offered to give an account of his official actions to any citizen who should ask for it. Then he went to spend his last years in his village at Cumi. Tired of war, of power, of glory, perhaps of men, he surrounded himself with singers, dancers, actors, and actresses, wrote his commentarii, hunted and fished, ate and drank. Men had long since called him Sulla Felix, Sulla the Happy, because he had won every battle, known every pleasure, reached every power, and lived without fear or regret. He married five wives, divorced four, and eked out their inadequacy with mistresses. At 58, he developed an ulcer of the colon so severe, the corrupted flesh, says Plutarch, broke out into lice. Many men were employed day and night in destroying them, but they so multiplied that not only his clothes, baths, and basins, but his very food was polluted with them. He died of intestinal hemorrhage after hardly a year of retirement. He had not neglected to dictate his epitaph which was, No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me, whom I've not repaid in full. End quote. That's a Clint Eastwood-style epitaph. Even in death, Sulla would prove to be a terrifying and divisive figure. There were those among the Populare faction who thought he didn't deserve any sort of public funeral at all. After all, this is the man who marched on Rome and killed more Romans, perhaps, than any person in history. Certainly more than any other Roman. And the way Romans were treated after death was a permissible form of political punishment. Politics didn't end when a famous Roman died. After all, this is part of the reason why Sulla was said to have opened up the tomb of Caius Marius once Sulla got control of Rome again and scattered the bones into a nearby river. You don't honor criminals, that seemed to be what Sulla was saying in terms of Marius, and there were those in the opposite party that felt Sulla deserved a similar treatment. There were powerful entities in the Roman state that weren't going to deny Sulla his just deserts, and the honors that they felt he deserved for fixing, preserving, and maybe strengthening and enhancing the Roman system. Here's what the ancient Roman writer Appian says. Quote, Dissension at once broke out over him in the capital. Some thought that his body ought to travel in solemn procession through Italy and be displayed in Rome in the Forum and have the honor of a public funeral. But Lepidus and his party contested this. Catalyst and the Sullens prevailed, and Sulla's corpse was carried through Italy to Rome in regal splendor on a gilded bier followed by a large number of trumpeters and horsemen and a throng of armed men on foot. Those who had served in soldiers under his command hurried under arms from every side to join the procession, and each, as he arrived, immediately assumed his place in military formation. A huge crowd of ordinary folk also gathered, such as had never been seen in any previous event, and at the head of this procession were carried the standards and the fasces which had accompanied him while he was alive and in power." When the body had been carried as far as Rome, it was conveyed into the city in a procession of stupendous pomp. More than two thousand hurriedly made golden crowns were carried past, these being gifts from the towns, and from the legions which had served with Sulla, and from his individual friends, and it is impossible to describe the lavishness of the other items that were sent to the funeral. Frightened by the assembled soldiery, all the priests and priestesses in their separate colleges, and the whole senate and the magistrates wearing their insignia of office, escorted the body. They were followed by another group, consisting of the members of the equestrian class, and all the soldiers who had served under Sulla's command in their units. The latter had gathered enthusiastically, all hurrying to take part. They carried gilded standards and wore arms worked with silver, of the sort that are still used for processions now. There was a vast number of trumpeters, alternating mournful with melting melodies." Sulla's praises were chanted out, first by the Senate and the Equestrian Order in turn, then by the soldiers, and then by the ordinary people, some genuinely regretting his loss, others, even now, as frightened of his army and his corpse as if he were still alive. As they gazed at the spectacle that was taking place, and remembered what the man had done, they were overwhelmed, agreeing with their opponents that he had brought the latter the greatest good fortune, but remained terrifying to themselves, even in death. When the body had been placed on the speaker's platform in the forum, the finest orator of the day gave the funeral address, because Faustus, Sulla's son, was still very young. Then some strong senators shouldered the bier and carried it to the campus Martius, where only emperors are buried, and the equestrian order and the military galloped around the funeral pyre. Such was Sulla's end. end quote. Appian then ends, ominously with the point that as they're walking away from the burning funeral pyre, the two consuls begin arguing amongst themselves already. Rather than provide the Romans with the stability that he seemed to be seeking for them, Sulla had merely provided a roadmap for how you achieve total power. As author Tom Holland so aptly describes it, quote, Sulla had given the Romans their first glimpse of what it might mean to be the subjects of an autocrat, and it had proved a frightening and salutary one. This was a discovery that could never be unmade. After the prescriptions, no one could doubt what the extreme consequences of the Roman appetite for competition and glory might be, not only for Rome's enemies, but for her citizens themselves. But what had once been unthinkable now lurked at the back of every Roman's mind. Sulla could do it. Why can't I? End quote. Sulla may have thought he was restoring the Constitution, reinstilling an aristocratic form of control over the Roman system, and stabilizing it for future generations. What Sulla had really taught the closely observing next generation of Rome's politicians, leaders, and generals, is that the new rules of the Roman game of power and ambition were that there were no rules. And a mass of clever, gifted, and ruthless Roman leaders would take this lesson to heart. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing tens of thousands of digital downloads to your computer, your iPod, and your MP3 player. Everything from audiobooks and every genre you can think of, by the way, Audible has it covered, to old radio programs, to famous funny comedy sketches. The amount of stuff is really staggering and growing all the time. I actually had one of those experiences while searching for a good book to recommend today that I guess I knew in my head was coming, but maybe didn't expect for it to happen so soon. There was a book I stumbled upon in the Audible catalog that you would have had a hard time finding anywhere in text form on any online bookseller. Wow, how strange to be able to find it in audio form at a place like Audible and not be able to find, you know, the actual written version somewhere. So maybe a watershed moment in the Downloadable audiobooks and audio entertainment revolution. If you don't know what to get, by the way, when you go to Audible and sign up for your free audiobook download, I have a book I'm reading right now. Can't totally vouch for it yet because I haven't finished it, but I think you'll like it, especially if you're one of the military history people out there, as I consider myself to be. It's called How Wars End Why We Always Fight the Last Battle by Gideon Rose. And he examines the major U.S. conflicts since the Second World War. And points out the disconnect between, you know, what we had hoped to achieve by getting involved in the conflict and how, you know, we focus so much on fighting the conflict itself that we lost sight of the goals, you know, that got us into it in the first place. It's fascinating reading. It kind of involves stuff we talk about all the time on our other podcast. And it's something specifically geared, I think, towards those in the military history uh, way of thinking who often like yours truly, will focus on tactics and strategy and all these things to win battles. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, though. Why are you fighting those battles to begin with? How Wars End, Why We Always Fight the Last Battle by Gideon Rose. Check it out and, you know, let me know what you think. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Hardcore History and get your free audiobook download. In the next episode of Death Throws of the Republic... The era of Marius and Sulla may have ended, but the seeds sown during that highly unusual, hyper-ambitious, partisan and military warfare between those two figures and their respective political factions will reap an amazingly bitter harvest. A gifted generation of Republican Romans is coming of age, and they're operating under the new rules that Marius and Sulla had established in Rome by their conduct. Great figures like Caesar and Crassus, Pompey and Cato, and of course the great Cicero, will vie with each other both for their own personal ambition and to preserve, at least they say, their conception of Republican Rome. Can they possibly be successful amid the slave revolts, the mob violence in the street, the financial condition of Rome, the civil wars going on, and the treachery and conspiracies involving their own political rivals? We'll try to answer those questions in the next edition of Death Rows of the Republic. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. Go to dancarlin.com for more information on how to donate to the show. A buck a show, it's all we ask.